It is my honor, first of all, to welcome you all to Alumni Hall, and second of all, to introduce our moderator uh, for today's topic. Uh, George Bloom has been a professor here in biology for 14 years. Um, he, came, he came in 2000 after uh, spending 16 years at the University of Texas Southwest, Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, where he was a professor of cell biology. He is currently, he holds a, a unique distinction, a relatively unique distinction here in the faculty. He's actually a full faculty member of two different schools. Uh, first of all, the College of Arts and Sciences in the Department of Biology, and then secondly, in the School of Medicine in the Department of Cell Biology. So he covers both camps, which is really where academically we're trying to do more of. As Terry Sullivan may have told you in many of her talks, trying to find those areas between the major areas is where the University of Virginia is probably going to excel and distinguish itself as time goes on. And George is kind of leading the vanguard of all that. Anyway, George got his uh, BA from the University of Pennsylvania, and he must have liked it a lot, so uh, he stayed a little bit longer and also got his uh, PhD in biology in 1979. His original uh, career, his career originally focused on fundamental cell bio biological questions, most notably how mammalian cells move and change shape and transport cellular building blocks from place to place within the cell. More recently, this basic science approach has led directly to more clinically relevant research in Alzheimer's, which is now the dominant theme of his lab. He's authored more than 80 scientific papers, has served on grant review panels for the NIH, the Alzheimer's Association, the American Cancer Society, and the Department of Defense, and is currently an associate editor of the award-winning and much-read journal, Cytoskeleton. All right? Everybody has a, everybody has a subscription to that? All those that do, raise their hand. Whole room, yes, everybody does. Very good, George. Um, his lab has been uh, supported by grants from NIH, the Owens Family Foundation, the Alzheimer's Fund, American Cancer Society, among others. He lives in Charlottesville uh, with his wife, Patricia Bloom, and when he's not working in his lab in the new physical life and life sciences building, you might find him fly fishing up on the Blue Ridge. So please welcome George Bloom. Thanks very much, Tom, and thank you, uh, everyone, for coming this morning. Uh, the bonds of friendship between the United States and France are, are legendary. I'll never forget as an elementary school student learning about how the, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette helped uh, what was then uh, still British colonies win their independence from, from Great Britain. And of course, uh, our own university's founding father, Thomas Jefferson, was a very well-known and unabashed Francophile uh, for most of his adult life. So at the risk of uh, skipping a couple of hundred years of, of additional history, uh, moving on to the, the present, uh, it's uh, really an honor to, to introduce this, this morning's speakers, Christine and Bernard Thies, uh, a husband and wife team who spent most of their lives in France. They're native uh, French, but uh, graced our shores a number of years ago to join the faculty here at, at UVA. Um, Chris and Bernard uh, are uh, two of the hardest working people that I know, uh, although as you can see, they do enjoy recreation from time to time. This is a picture of them uh, on a cross-country ski trip in, in West Virginia uh, earlier this year. Um, but uh, their day jobs is uh, as, cell bio as, as developmental biologists here at UVA. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with that, uh, 
what developmental biologists do, uh, they have dedicated their careers to understanding how a uh, almost perfectly spherical microscopic or submicroscopic uh, fertilized egg can be transformed into a complete animal, uh, which in the case of large animals like human beings may have trillions of cells, even in smaller animals, millions to billions of cells. And, and undergo all sorts of cell divisions and uh, shape changes and specializations. Uh, they've dedicated their careers to that. Now, more recently, or actually I, th I think all along, uh, uh, the goal here was not to pursue simple uh, esoteric, academic, and, and scientific questions, but eventually to uh, begin uh, applying the knowledge that they learned to practical human problems. And uh, they're going to tell you about that work today, uh, as well as some of the work that led up to it. And what they're interested in, I think first and foremost, in terms of practicality, is organ replacement. How to, uh, how to make, in a glass <coughs> dish, a new liver, a kidney, a lung, whatever, whatever it may be, uh, to replace organs that have deteriorated uh, in human beings and may compromise the lives of those people unless they can be replaced. Now, of course, until uh, even up to this day, almost all organ replacement has involved uh, transplantations of organs from dead people who are otherwise perfectly healthy, uh, at least until the time they died. Uh, uh, but you know, maybe the good, news, the good news and the bad news is that's a very limited source of, of organs. And as you'll hear in their talk, uh, there, there's not nearly an adequate supply of organs for that kind of, of, of replacement. So like many biologists, uh, Chris and Bernard use model animal systems for their studies. And, and, and this is for a variety of, of practical reasons, uh, not the least of which is that it's unethical to do all sorts of experiments at that level with human beings. And in addition, it's very, uh, uh, it, even if you could do it, it would be prohibitively expensive. So um, what they have done uh, is to focus on, uh, on uh, a vertebrate system that you see here. It's a zebrafish. You'll hear a lot more about it uh, in a couple of minutes. And you may ask, well, why zebrafish? Well, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're vertebrates. They have, uh, for all intents and purposes, the same gene sets that everyone sitting in the audience have. They have uh, two forelimbs, two hind limbs, brains, eyes. Uh, they're basically uh, nothing more than small, uh, slimy human beings with fins, okay? So they're absolutely perfect model systems to study human development and human organ replacement. Uh, uh, and you'll, again, you'll be hearing about that uh, very shortly. So uh, some of the, a lot of the work that, that Chris and Bernard have been doing over the years really culminated uh, earlier this year in a paper that was published in, in Science about basically how to build a complete zebrafish uh, in a dish, starting with just a few uh, undifferentiated cells and stimulating them with just two proteins. And although the net result of this was the uh, growth of an entire fish, uh, the principles that were learned from those studies uh, can be used uh, 
uh, can be sort of scaled back and adapted for the development uh, of organs. Now, we're at the very early stages of this, and so uh, rather than steal any more thunder from Chris and Bernard, I'd like to uh, turn the chair over now to Chris, who will uh, deliver the talk. And after, after Chris is done, uh, she and Bernard will be happy to answer questions from the crowd. So without any further delay, Chris, Bernard, it's a pleasure to have you. Look forward to the talk. All right, so thanks so much for your invitation, Tom and Alcea, and thanks for your very nice introduction. I think we're done. We can go. He, he told you everything already. And I really like to thank you all because I know some of you coming from quite far. Even they don't go to the games this afternoon, so I'm very honored. Thank you so much. And I'm very happy to share the results we got recently in the lab with you. I really think lifetime um, Learning is a very good opportunity for all of us to try to be exposed to different kind of topics. And I look at the program, it's very exciting and I'm very proud to be part of it. So today, we'll be talking about building tissue and organ in vitro. In vitro means in a test tube or in a culture plate, something we do in a lab. First, I'd like to tell you a bit about these two words, regenerative medicine. These two words appear in 1992, so it's not too old. And uh, it has been seen in uh, different books and in the newspaper. And since then, lots of energy has been spent and work spent doing some work on generative medicine. So what are the goals of generative medicine? First is to try to engineer tissue and organ, so in a lab. Second is to try to repair or to replace damage on non-functional organ, so using this technology or other technology I will speak about into uh, a, a couple of minutes. And the ultimate goal for generating gen uh, medicine is to restore normal function of the body. As uh, George just told you, we are, Bernard and I, developmental biologists. So our focus is on this first phase, try to engineer tissue and organ at the lab in a test tube. Why that? Why is this energy spent so much in generating medicine field? Because when you look at some numbers that are provided by this organization, which is called OPTN for Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. You will see that the numbers are not really good. We have 123,000 people that are on the waiting list for organ donation. And among these people, 100,000 people are waiting to get a kidney transplantation, 15,000 need a liver, and 4,000 need a heart. But so far, the transplantation has been done, so that's recent numbers because they were published in July this year. Only one-tenth of these people could get a heart or a kidney or whatever they would need. So the community were able just to help one-tenth of these people. So that's not very good news. So because of that, this obvious lack of organ transplant 
the scientific community has come up with some alternative approaches. The first one is to try to build artificial organs. So here you have a heart, so it's a machine. So we have artificial organs for the kidney or for the heart right now. That's it, nothing else. What is good about it, like for this heart, an artificial heart allows high blood of flow in your body. So when you put this heart, all the organs get that blood flow and they function much better. But this is a machine, so you can keep it just for a couple of months, maybe a year or so, but that's it. Then you really need a real heart transplantation. So that's one way. A second way is to use animal transplant, mainly the pig. But you pretty much know that there is a very high frequency of human rejection, and from the animal you can get lots of bad disease, and you don't want to, to get that. So it's less in use right now. The third method is a 3D, 3D printing. So you, I'm sure you've heard about that. It's going to be all over the news. So what does that mean? So it's a printer. And for that, you use what we call bio-inks. It's a mix of living cell and gelatin. Gelatin is something that allows the cells to be kind of cohesive. And, on, and you need that for the cell to survive. So what you can do in 3D printing is mainly tube, big cylinder. So it has been done with success for small blood vessels, so the capillaries. It's also been done for building a trachea. Trachea is kind of simple structure mainly made of cartilage. So it has been done um, with this young girl. So on this picture, this girl is in between three, uh, two to three years old. And she was born without trachea at all. So she couldn't survive. She, you need that too. It's very useful for your breathing, for eating, for speaking, and everything. So she's from Korea. And her parents contacted an hospital in Illinois and a lab. And they decided to give um, stem cells from this uh, girl, from their daughter. The stem cells were sent to the United States. And the lab uh, from 3D printing print a trachea, which was the right shape and was good. The girl came to the US after two years. She had to wait. In the between, she had kind of plastic tube in there. She came to the US. She, the, it took two years because she had to have lots of paperwork done to make sure it's safe, to make sure it's allowed. So she came to the US, and she got the surgery this spring at Easter time. And since she was much better, she could breathe. She could eat, and she started to speak, and she could get out of the bed and start, you know, just to move around and play a bit. Unfortunately, she died uh, two or three weeks ago because she had small general health problems. But it doesn't seem it was because what she got, the surgery and the, the trachea. But it gives you some hope there. So if we summarize what we can do with 3D printing, it has some limitation. For now, you can just do single See, very simple structure like tubes, I told you, capillary or this trachea. There is no way for now you can do complex organs because organs is a mix of different things. It's a mix of what we call bricks, different kind of bricks, which are put together with this matrix. So an organ is a, composed of a variety of cell types, really well precisely organized, and they have some properties. The cells have some property. They crawl, they migrate, they proliferate, they divide. 
And the point right now, we don't know all those parameters, how you can make everything the right way to make the right architecture for an organ. So we don't know how to do that. That means there is no way for now we can do 3D printing of very, something very complex. So for now, won't work. All right, so now we enter in a big world, stem cell world. You, you, with everybody's talking about stem cells. So what is behind this big world? So you may have uh, hear or see advertisement for stem cell therapy. It's supposed to be the golden temple. With those stem cells, you do everything, even put more hair in your head. <laughs> but for now, there's not that much things working that way, you know? You need to be really cautious of what you're reading. What really works is what we call bone marrow transplantation. Bone marrow is here in your sternum, in your long bones, and has been used to treat leukemia or lymphoma. So let's say a patient has le le uh, leukemia. First, he will be getting a very strong treatment, chemotherapy, that will kill his cells and his sick cells. And he will get from a donor bone marrow. So the donor is supposed to be healthy. It's verified first, better for the patient. And then, so this bone marrow will be transplanted. We call that transplantation, but in fact, it's more like we put that in your vein, so intravenous injection. So this really works, has been used, you know, since decades. You may see also some advertisement from orthopedic clinics that try to help you to, you know, repair your knees that just feel, feel pain like crazy and you don't know what to do and you don't want to have a knee replacement it's just because your cartilage is in a bad shape. So the orthopedic surgeon, what he will do, get your cells from your sternum, get them in a needle and a syringe, put them in your knee, and it's supposed to coat your knee and help you to recover. It seems it works a bit, it helps a bit, but not for too long, so uh, maybe not the best way. And uh, what you will see also, some advertisements saying, you can use stem cells, transplant of stem cells, it's kind of vague, and it, it can be treated for brain degeneration, like Parkinson or Alzheimer's disease. But frankly, if you look at what is published, it's really not very controlled, and I'm not sure you can trust those kind of studies. So I'd be very cautious, and maybe you know a bit more than me because you are an isomer thing, so maybe we can discuss about that later. What is efficiency, what works, what doesn't work, and so on. So mainly what we have seen here, what we call transplantation. There is another technique we call repair, and it comes from a paper that has been published in uh, 2010. From, uh, it was published in a small journal. Nobody talked about it that much, so I'm not sure it's a good sign or bad sign. But by the way, there was a patient who had an infection in his heart, and he volunteered to give his, again, bone marrow cells. Those cells were cultured in a petri dish, and they were put in a medium with lots of factors, kind of a soup of different factors. Some of those cells turn in cardiac cells. And this soup with these cardiac cells, so they verify they were cardiac cells because they were beating like normal cardiac cells, was put back in the heart of the patient at the place where the heart was damaged. So the patient, I read the article, the patient was happy about it. He went out of the bed and he was able to walk. He was not able to do before because he was really in bad shape. 
but I couldn't find any report saying it's still alive, it's still okay. And most importantly, nobody check if what has been done was efficient or not. Because you cannot kill the patient, open the heart and look and see, oh yeah, what I did it was efficient. So, and also on top of it, there has been a kind of survey on all papers that had been published four or five years you know, uh, ago and from 2010 and now, saying that most of the papers have been published using this technique. In fact, they were not that controlled. There are lots of mistakes in the paper, so it may be not reliable. So I would say, is it repair or scam? I'm not sure. But, by the way, there's been another report, which is kind of recent. It has been published, I think, two weeks or three weeks ago in a bigger journal, Nature. So Nature is supposed to have a better result kind of scoop. Sometimes it's not that scoop, and they retract the paper. But generally, we, we trust more this kind of journals. And so they will be using the same uh, methodology, but done on a, a monkey, a primate. And what has been done, human embryonic stem cells have been used. They have been put again in a petri dish with a cocktail of molecules that turn most of this embryonic stem cell into cardiac cells. And those cardiac cells have been put back in the heart of the monkey at the place where you have this damage. And the paper said, and I check at the, the figure and everything, and the control are there, and there has been a good regeneration of the cardiac muscle in this monkey. So they sacrifice the animal, and they look at the heart, and they look, and it seems really some cells have been integrated, and the, the heart was in better shape. So I think we have some hope here, and we see what will uh, happen in the future with that technology. All right, so now we have been seeing regeneration and transplantation. So now we'll uh, see another method to try to help in the regeneration field is to use embryonic stem cells, but this time to build organs from this embryonic stem cell. So here, what we want to do is to try to mimic in vitro, so again in a test tube, all the processes that occur during normal embryonic development. We're producing what, how we were made from the start ourselves. All right, so there have been two very nice reports about that. So two teams took embryonic stem cells. They put them in the plate. They make some balls from them, small balls, that we call embryonic body. And from there, they soak again in some medium outside, soup of molecule again. And what they got from there is, so one team got an eye, and another team got part of the brain. They call that cerebral organoids. But you see some words here, self-formation and self-organization. So it, it happened randomly, sometimes. So what did they do? So you have your ball, embryonic body. The factors they used were outside, and these factors were entering in the ball homogeneously. So when the, they get a self-organization of 3D organs, it can happen, it's just gamble. Why? Because you will never get organs that way if you have uh, molecules entering uh, homogeneously in a ball. You need to define what we call coordinates. The best image is when you are in a boat, in the sea, 
you need to know exactly where you are. So you need, your boat is defined by the longitude and the latitude. And precisely, you know where you are in the ocean. It's exactly the same. If you want to make 3D organs, what you need to have is one factor that defines where is your head, where is your tail. That's one coordinate. And you need to have another factor that defines where is your belly, where is your back. So you have your two coordinates, latitude and longitude. So that means every single cell in your body has been defined precisely along these two coordinates and later on your, along your right and your left. And from that, you define your organs very precisely, very precise manner, both in shape and localization in your body. So that's what you need to get. So, of course, that's what we want to do. Define who is factor one and who is factor two. And we really think that we will be able to build tissue and organ from embryonic stem cell, but we need to take control. We don't want to have these factors, this soup. We don't know what we have. We put them and then look and wait and pray and say, maybe one day we get something. That's not the way. So we think that what we need to do is find the principle, the laws, that will govern the organization of the embryo. So in other words, our bricks are the embryonic stem cells. And from those embryonic stem cells, we want to reconstruct. That's mean one piece after the other, you do your game, you have your Lego game, and at the end, you make your car, okay? And your car has so many pieces. But which ones are very important for having your engine starting? Do we need 5 million, 5,000, 100? So which ones are the most important and will be your toolkit? If you need 1,000, we're dead. We won't be able to do it. It's far too much. If there were less, maybe. So that was the challenge we tried to take. For doing that, we use a fish. George showed you a fish. It was in the wrong orientation. The head should be there on the left and not right up. <laughs> but I know you wanted to have Thomas Jefferson afterwards. By the way, it's a fish that big. It comes from the Sacred River. It comes from the Ganges in India. and has been important in the labs in the 80s, all over the place, start here in the US in Germany at the same time. It's very nice fish. You see it has a nice uh, blue stripe. Uh, kids can raise it at home without any problems. They are very resistant and never sick. You put them out, you know, just do how kids are doing with fish. So they are very easy to maintain. Also, they lay a lot of eggs. One female can lay in between 100 to 1,000 eggs each time we put it in a cage with a, with a male. So we let this female rest, and she can rest two weeks, and then we use the same female. But as we have that many fish in the lab, we can use other females to get our eggs. The other advantage is that the embryo are transparent. So that's great. They lay outside the mother. You look at them, you see everything across them. That's mean compared to other animals. When we work in the, on the egg in the morning, in the afternoon or the next day, we can see the result right away. Under the scope, we see the eggs. We don't have to have fancy technique cutting the eggs, embed in uh, some product or so on. You don't have to make session. You see right away what you want to see. So that's really, really interesting for us because it's fast. And what is fast also is the development of this fish because in three days, you have a larvae. A larvae, it's a, 
a small fish that swim around, can chase his food. Uh, he has a heart, he has a brain, he has kidneys, he has everything like you have. The only difference, the fish will grow a bit slower after that. In three months, he, make, he needs to make his bones. But the rest, at three days, everything is made. So now I will show you a movie, how the embryos develop very early on. So I will pass it several times because you have different things to see. All right, so here's a movie. So what you see here, this big ball is a yolk. So that's the food for the embryo. On top is where the embryo will be made. made. So, one, so what you will be seeing, so I let it run one time. Here we go. It's less than a day. So in a day, it does all the things. So we start from the beginning again. So the cells are dividing here so that the embryo will be formed. And then you have a moment you will see here is very important. The most important moment in your life is when you were in the fet fetus in the belly of your mom and you're doing this. It's called gastrulation. Gastrulation. It's when your organs start to be made. So if you don't do gastrulation, you will never get organs. So we start again. I will describe the, the end of the development. So you will see again the gastrulation. The cell will go in like this. Almost there. Here we go. You see that? This gastrulation. And then you have the cells you know, making all the body axis. So the eyes here, that's the trunk of the fish. So what you see is what you eat in the fish, the muscle. And here it's a tail. All right? So one day of development. And then later on, just the, the, um, the fish will extend a bit, and you have the tail, which is kind of straight. OK, so enough of the movie now. We move on. So again, my car. So not only we want to know which factor is important in there, but what we want to do and know, we want to know which factor will be sufficient to induce embryo development, resulting in formation of tissue and organ. The good news is, in the forest of factors that has been described by every lab, you work on a gene, so your gene is the most important of the planet, you know, because you work on it. And you have hundreds and hundreds of factors have been described to be important for embryonic development, but just we need two. So that's really good news for us, because working with two is not that difficult. So those factors are growth factors. And I will use this work a lot, so you need to try to remember those. So the first one is called nodal, and the other one is called BMP. BMP is the abbreviation of bone morphogenetic protein. This factor will be isolated first for bone formation, so that's the name coming from. So these two factors, nodal and BMP. So now we're doing a bit of science, so get there, okay? Be alert. So these BMP and nodal factor are diffusible signals. They act like gradients. So you lost already, but I will tell you what it is. So you have a source of signal like BMP or nodal, which is very high concentrated at the source. Then when you go away from the source, this concentration just decreases. You have intermediate kind of moderate uh, concentration here and low concentration here. It's represented here on the curve. High concentration that goes down to low concentration. What is very important about this factor is that depending on the concentration of the signal, BMP or nodal, you will induce different types of cells.
For example, here it's highly concentrated. You get a red cell. It's medium concentration of this factor. You get a white cell. And it's a low concentration of this factor. You get a blue cell. Okay? Different kind of type of cells. So where are these factors distributed in the embryo? You remember my movie, that's the embryo. At the time, it was gastrulating, remember? The start of making the internal organ. So the food is here, the yolk, and here you have the embryo. So just to give you some topology here. The ventral part of the embryo is on that side. The dorsal side of the embryo is on that side. And here it's animal pole, like nose pole. Remember, animal pole, nose pole. And our factors are there. So BMP, remember, it's a gradient. So it was very highly concentrated here in Godon. It's here. The ventral part of the embryo is Godon. It's represented by the green here. And nodal, the gradient, so it's, uh, kind of even everywhere here and goes up to right there. All right? So you see where they are in the embryo. So we have work on BMP and on nodal separately in different studies for years. And we discover that these two factors independently are very important for early embryonic development. So what we thought, aha, uh -huh, if they are important for doing some things in the embryonic development, maybe we could put them together and see if they require a new function and do more. So the way we did it is the following. We injected BMP and nodal in a very young embryo. That was the key point. So injecting BMP and nodal together in a needle in one cell. It's represented by this uh, uh, green uh, dot. Do it very early on when nothing is instructed. No factor will influence what we'll be doing. And third, in a region of the embryo where we have naive cells that are equivalent to embryonic stem cells. And it's there. It's, remember, North Pole, animal pole. So again, we inject BMP and nodal in one cell very early on in this region where you have embryonic stem cells. So these cells are not instructed. And what you will be doing, it's, you know, because you are doing this injection, maybe you get something, and there will be the consequence of your injection. So the result is the following. So again, remember my egg very early on with injection of BMP and nodal at the North Pole. That's a normal embryo. That's the one you have seen on the movie. It's a bit uh, older. You see now the tail is kind of straight. But he has his head, which is here with the eye. You have the trunk here. And what you see, the shrivel shape is a muscle. It's what you eat when you buy fish at whole food. That's your food. That's your muscle. So now that's what we are making, this embryo. So this part is exactly the same as this one, just normal. But because we have injected BMP nodal here, now we are making this extra. And this extra is a tail. And this tail is generated because we have injected BMP nodal. And we get a tail when we inject 25 more of BMP that nodal. So ratio between BMP and nodal, 25 more of BMP than nodal, we make a tail. So then we say, okay, let's do it again, but change the ratio. Change 
you know, BMP concentration and BMP nodal, and nodal concentration and see what we get. And the amazing thing is what? Using different ratio between BMP and nodal, we were able to get different parts of the body, shrunk of the body. I will show you that in a second. So here are our curves again. You remember BMP, it was high in the ventral part of the embryo and was decreasing. And nodal was kind of flat and was going up in the dorsal part of the body. So when you have 25 more of BMPs at nodal, we're making a tail. I just show you the picture. But now if we have five times more of BMPs at nodal, we're making trunk, but just trunk, nothing else. When we have as much as BMP and nodal, ratio one to one, we make a head. And if we have no BMP but just nodal, we are making notochord is um, what will become later on your vertebral column. But an embryo it does not have a trunk or head. He has everything. He has from, from, from you know, the head to the trunk, every structure is made. So we thought maybe if we want to get more, maybe we can do the experiments a bit differently. For now, we have injected BMP and nodal in one cell. Why don't we put BMP and nodal apart? So like this, we have them interacting better. And maybe in that case, we, we get much more of the embryo and maybe the full embryo. So this shown here. So now we are injecting at the North Pole, animal pole here, BMP and nodal. And you see some cells are not injected in between. And this is the result. So that's the real data. So you're looking from the top here. And you see the green cells, the, the ones we injected with BMP, and the red cells are the ones we injected with nodal. All right, so what do we get now? So that's a normal embryo, you know, already, with no injection, just, you know, just growing like this. And now that's our result, and it's pretty good. So what you see here, this part is equivalent to a normal embryo, but now we are making extra. And those extra are what? Generated by BN nodal. And this is a trunk and a tail, which are similar to that part. So that means if you look from here to here, you cannot say which one is the normal side and which one is the side which has been generated by BMP nodal. So this is complete. Has a, this part has a nervous system, it has muscle, everything you can think about. So we were able to make, you know, using this technique, BMP and nodal apart, the full structure from the trunk to the tail. But you will argue that here is not great. You see, compared to a normal embryo, here it's pretty clear you have an eyes, and the here is somewhere here. You see a mess. Because there is um, kind of all the cells, they compete to make here a head and here a head. And at the end, you have nothing. You don't have separate heads. But in some cases, if we change a bit the way we inject and the position, we get a complete embryo. I will just show you that right now. So that's pretty amazing result, and I'm sure you never saw something like this before. So what you see here? So you see the ball here. It's a yolk, the food. On top, everything which is in black is the endogenous embryo. We have a head, a trunk, and a tail, which is moving quite fast. And here, what you see, it's the embryos that didn't build from the injection we made at the animal pole with BMP and nodal apart. And you see again that he has a head, like this one. He has a trunk, and he has a tail. He's a bit smaller because we use just a couple. We start from one cell at the beginning, remember? And then they proliferate, but it's very small. So that's why it's a bit smaller. 
but the structure exactly the same. And on top of it, the endogenous embryo has a heart. The ones it builds with BMP and all, it has also a heart. And they don't uh, pace at the same rhythm. And I think what is very obvious also here, you see the tail moving. You see here the tail moving as well, but not the same rhythm. So what does that mean? The embryos that are built by instruction, instruction by BMP and Odol is independent. He has his own nervous system, is able to contract his muscle, and he has his heart beating by himself. So it's really independent. So what does that mean overall? That's me, and that's one of your first uh, take-home message. We just need two factors. Those factors are BMP and Odol. And they are sufficient to initiate all developmental programs required for the formation of a complete embryo. So far now what we've got, endogenous embryo, and that's the one we're making. Remember, the, their tails are moving not exactly at the same rhythm. So that means they are dependent. But we thought, are we completely sure that maybe some cells from the endogenous embryo won't contribute to this one? So we thought we try, we'll try to get that embryo without the other one to make sure, 100% sure, we make all the structure. So the way to do it, it was kind of a big step for us to try to reproduce a result in a petri dish, try to grow an embryo in a cell plate like this by instructing the, the embryonic stem cell with the two factors we have isolated, BMP and nodal. So we did that. So again, we are always in the fish. So we have our embryo early on with the yolk, the food, and the cells that will become later on, you know, embryo, full embryo. And what we've done, we cut the North Pole here, take these cells that are naive and embryonic stem cell. And then what we did from that, one more, we cut this piece and let it grow in a petri dish in a medium which is neutral because we don't want it to influence what we are doing, and let it grow. After three minutes, you see the cells start to get more roundish, and after one hour, you have a very nice fair. So if you don't do anything, let this ball grow. doesn't go too far. I think it's better, you know. You don't want to have those cells just doing a, <laughs> a fish like this. So you have no structure made, no organ made. But now, if you instruct your cells with BMP and nodal apart, and you cut this piece, so that's a real data you're going for from the top. You have BMP here, and you have nodal here. What do you expect? You expect that if we are saying it's true, if nodal and BMP are sufficient, in that case, you should get a number you showing a variety of different tissue and organ in vitro. That means you should see an embryo moving in your petri dish. All right, does it work? Yes, it does. <laughs> All right, so that's the result. So that's the very beginning. You remember one of the most important time in your life is your gastrulation. When you start to have your cell going in it, start to make the internal organ. So the ball, roundish. If you don't do anything, this ball won't do anything and will die. But now, if you have in your ball instruction by BMP and odor, you make a gastrulation. And you see that here. So we start from there. You see the cells going in here, 
this is like Zen, and they extend like this. So you don't have a ball anymore. You start to have kind of a bean shape. So that's the very beginning. So when we saw that, I can tell you, we just jump. You know, it's very happy. So then, what do you get? It's one day old embryoids. So what you get, you have two embryoids here. So you have, you know, an embryo that looks like a normal embryo with the right shape. The head is here, the trunk and the tail. Same thing for this one. And you have some structure I am able to recognize by eye, which is called forebrains. It's there. And you have all the spinal cords that come from here to here. You have somites. That's what you eat in your fish again. And notochord is the later on you will give your vertebrae colon. So by eyes, you can recognize this structure right away. And so we did a, a bit more of investigation. And we used specific marker for specific organs. And we saw we are making organs like we are able to make a heart, well shaped, a liver, or pronephros uh, kidneys. Right? So, yes, we have identified BMP and nodal that are the factors sufficient to initiate the developmental program that leads to the formation of an embryo. So, now if we come back to the scheme those um, scientists did with the ball, and they were soaking this ball in some factor. And those factors were going in homogeneously, and they couldn't get organ, but just sometimes. Now we control the situation, because now we are able to make coordinates. Now we know that nodal is the first coordinate that defines where is your head, where is your tail, and that's the one initiate gastrulation, you know, the beginning of making the organs. And the second factor that defines where is your belly, where is your back, is BMP. And now you have your coordinates. So every single cell is defined, leaving later on to make your organs. And BMP and nodal together make all cell types, and then you get your tissue and organ. Right. So it's pretty good, except you may have seen that the embryoids we are making are kind of small compared to the normal embryo. Why that? Because these embryos that give this uh, fish there contain 6,000 cells. But what we are doing, we're just cutting the top here. You know, remember the animal pole. So we just have 2,000 of cells, so one third. So that's why it's kind of small. So we say, OK, if we lack cell, try to put more. So what we did, we took an embryo, cut the top, take another embryo, cut the other top, put them together. So that's what we call a fused animal pole. So we have two. Instruct with BMP and all, and then see what we get. So we've got that with just one explant, but now we have two, we get more. It doubles the size. And also because we have far more cells from the start, we even get much, much well-developed structure. So we're looking at the brain. So that's the brain of a normal fish embryo. So you see the anterior brain here and two eyes on the side. You one eye, two eyes, with a lens here and the retina. And what we are able to do with our brain such is head, after application of BMP nodal, is exactly the same. Anterior brain and two eyes with retina and lens. So that's pretty good. You have a brain made really uh, the, the, the right way, like a white type. And on top of it, these embryos move. They move in the dish. So that means they have their own nervous system. They have muscle contracting. And we know that the next day their heart was beating. I don't have the picture for that. So altogether, the second home message is when you use BMP and nodal gradient, 
you cut this piece, you culture it in vitro in a petri dish, you are able to form tissue and organ similar to normal development. So altogether, our study was the first report on the identification of the signal, and only two, which is very amazing, sufficient to lead embryonic cells to differentiate into tissue and organ. And we are really taking control. That's why this paper was published in a big journal in science, and it's why I'm here today. All right, so we define the who, the when, and the how. The who you know now, it's nodal and BMP. When you need to use embryonic stem cells, we use those from the animal pole. We need to inject this factor in the cell and not try to soak product outside. The concentration between this factor matter, as well as the distance where you put your factor. And then you make your coordinates, and then you make your fish organs. So now you want, I'm sure you will say, ah, oh, she's working on fish, but what about the other species? Does it apply to higher vertebrate? A fish is a lower vertebrate. A mouse is a higher vertebrate, all right? So does it apply? So what we know is the fish and the mouse, they derive from a common ancestor that looked like that, you know, far uh, long ago, 530 million ago. So we pretty much know that a mouse and a fish, they have a heart, they have kidneys, they have a stomach, intestine. We are quite made the same way. We have a brain, we have a, the same kind of bones, we have a vertebrae colon, we have ribs. Of course, there are some differences. We don't have fins, for example. But even there are some differences, the general rules should be maintained through evolution. And the good news, on top you have mouse embryo, on the bottom you have zebrafish embryo. We put them in the same orientation to compare things. And what we're comparing here is where some factors are. It's a blue staining here. You don't care what it is, just to give you an idea. So you see in between the mouse and the fish exactly at the same position. And the good news also is, in the fish, I told you all along my talk, we have nodal and BMP. In the mouse, we have also nodal and BMP. And they are exactly in the same position, at the same place, at the same time, than BMP and nodal in the fish. So that's a very good sign. This factor should work as well. So right now, what we are doing, in the mouse, we don't use embryos because they are small. We don't want to kill the mother. And when, if we get the embryos, they're already too old for what we're doing. Everything is decided already, so we cannot work with mouse embryo. What is available is cells, so cell in a petri dish. But for now, we just work with our embryo. We cut the top. So if we want to compare the system, we need to have really systems that look alike. So what we are doing is uh, we have done some you know, take our animal pole and dissociate the cell, so, and culture the cell, so it looks like what we can have in the mouse. And from there, we are making our balls, which we call embryonic body, in the fish and the mouse. And now we are trying to apply our principle and the signal we have identified to, cult to this culture cell. And I don't have the result yet, so you have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now I'm wondering, what is for, you know, all she told me about and all this technique, what is a future step for generative medicine? You remember my story about this scientist that took embryonic stem cell, make a ball, and then they got something pretty good, an eye, and part of the brain. 
And I told you it was kind of self-formation or self-organization, so that means it happens sometimes. So we wonder, why did it happen? Because when they do the ball, sometimes the ball is not very spherical, and that's the start of breaking symmetry and making your axis. But it happens sometimes, it's random, and you cannot reproduce this every time the same way. But now, I think we do better because we can control what we are doing with doing our coordinates and making, and making our organs. So, of course, right now, it's a bit science fiction to have ma making uh, organs uh, in a petri dish, take them out, and put them in the human beings. But still, we are doing embryoins that have a bunch of organs. So the next question is now, we are making a bunch of organs. So it's still a bunch of organs, but at a point it will be considered like as an individual. So I think when the time will be coming, especially in higher vertebrate, like in the Mars, we'll be able to do that, that people need to sit down and think and see what is good for the society and for improving health, because we are facing, we'll be facing ethical questions. And I think even in that experiment, it could be the case also. So we need to take, pay attention about that. All right, so I'm almost done. I'd like to thank the people that were involved with the work. So I would say that the founder of this work, these people, uh, uh, Antoine was a PhD student, very talented guy. He was working with us in, in Strasbourg in France, as well as Jean Daniel, who was a postdoc. And Karin, she uh, joined us here in UVA when we moved. And then we have the current team with Peng Fei and Nathalie. Both of them are postdoc and uh, working on this uh, uh, kind of investigation, and they were author on the paper in science. And Ji Hong, that just joined us recently in the lab, she's an undergrad, and she's very excited about what we are doing in the lab together. And those people are here, so if you want to raise your hand, Peng Fei, Nathalie, Jiyong. Right. All right, I'm done. Thank you, Chris, for a, a wonderful talk. Thank you. Um, we're uh, going to have a question and answer session. And as the moderator, I'm, I'm going to start off with a, a, a one, maybe two questions, and, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So the first question actually uh, is, is specifically for Christine. And uh, I forgot to tell you guys that she's not always been a scientist. She actually uh, spent several years as a nurse. And so perhaps you can tell us uh, how or what motivated you to make this transition from being a nurse to a scientist. Okay. So first, I'd like to tell you in France, when you are a nurse, you are a nurse for all your life. There is no way, like in the US, to change paths. It's considered like you're crazy, you don't know what you want to do in your life. So you are a nurse, you, you, you keep being a nurse. So when I uh, wanted to go back to the university, I didn't want to get from the start because I was so old already. It was too much energy to spend. So I was able to uh, enter in the three years program, and I'm sure I was the only nurse in the country in France that went back to university and got a PhD. So, I, you know, if I had to do it again, I'm not sure I would do it again. It was so hard. <laughs> anyway, so I really, really enjoyed being a nurse. 
I had lots of contact with lots of people. I work a lot with uh, people that got cancer. I, I work with, uh, we even uh, start a cancer throat department, so it was a start. So we're really attached to all these people that were staying. In France, you stay quite long in the hospital. When you have such things, you stay three weeks, a month. So you live with all these people who are sick, and you know the families and so on. So it was really heartbreaking when I had to leave the hospital. But on the other hand, you know, when you're good at what you do, sometimes you feel you need to learn more. And I felt kind of a bit frustrated not understanding the principle how you make an embryo. And this guy was my husband at that time already, was in it already. So he said, so passionate about what he's doing. Oh, you know what I got? What did my experiment say? Okay, maybe I need to go and, and try to learn more. And that's the way I went in it. And I think I'm very lucky in my life I could do both. And I really enjoy what I'm doing. Less the grand writing, you know, finding money, it's just boring. But um, doing the experiment, you know, we are the first to, do, to see these things. And also have be a teacher and train the young generation that we take over. I think it's a really a gift. So I really enjoy both, uh, you know, kind of part of my career. Yes, sir. Uh, did you allow I was wondering if you allowed any of the embryos to mature. So the point is they won't live for too long. So they stay at this embryonic uh, kind of one day old, and then they, they don't survive, they, they die. I think maybe we don't have the medium, which is uh, perfect. And also I didn't mention, because I don't want to be too complicated, you saw this embryo didn't have any yolk. You know the food. Because we cut the top, and you grow from those cells, we, uh, make, we put your factor with it. But you need the yolk for a fish. Because on top of the yolk, you have very important blood vessels that make the circulation in between the heart and, the, and, you know, and you don't have blood circulation. So if you don't have blood circulation, you don't survive. Not, not at all. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the talk. Do you think it'd be possible to 3D print the simplest organ in the zebrafish? Don't this one. Well, I think 3D printing, yeah, it's, 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 it's possibility. there is a possibility. It's just the problem is when it becomes complex, uh, you need to, to put a lot of different cell types together. And in fact, it's not simply, I mean, it's not just spheres that you put next to each other. <coughs> they are uh, assembled by contact. They have a, a history through development. They don't, they are not just built by being put next to each other. You have the daughter cell, two daughter, four daughter, and then they, 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 they arrange themselves through a developmental program. It will be very difficult to develop that through 3D printing. I think all the, the techniques that Christine presented at the beginning of the talk are techniques that can be used in subset of, of question and problem. But at one point, the day we really want to do something complex, like having a full organ and put it back in the body of someone, we need to have all cell type organized with the same way it has been done during embryonic development. It's science fiction now. It may be not for our generation, maybe not for generation of our daughter, uh, but maybe the generation after we may think about having a library somewhere of organ uh, for made from your own stem cell. And uh, we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I, just, I, I just wanted to ask, uh, what are the major source of the BMP and Nordl, and how do they generate it? This, these two things vary across the different species, or is it like a universal thing in mammalia? I think. Yeah, 
Well, we know that NBMP are encoded in a chromosome, and uh, all vertebrates have both uh, nodal and BMP. Uh, N vertebrates have BMP, but nodal is a more recent acquisition. It's only in the chordate filia that we, that we found those proteins. And when we manipulate them, we manipulate uh, uh, the gene expression. So we are producing in tubes uh, mRNA that encodes the protein, and we are providing the mRNA to the cells that translate and generate the protein and send out of the cell generating the gradient. Uh, it seems that your uh, coordinates depend a lot on gravity. So like all these pictures are pretty nice because they're like vertical, but that can't be reality or is that just the way it worked out in the photograph? And so it's the XY axis really, there should be like a Z axis and then there's time. So, you know, really there's like other factors of where things are and where you're injecting stuff. How do you control that, is it gravity really a thing, or just the picture is? <laughs> well, when you, when you want to instruct a sphere and, and give coordinates, you need uh, a, an origin of, a meridian of origin, which is in now in Greenwich when you speak about the geography, and you just need two coordinates. So you don't need X, Y, and Z. X and Y uh, is sufficient if you, if you have uh, uh, the, the, the origin set. Uh, and it's independent of gravity because uh, <coughs> the molecules do not really feel the, the, the weight and uh, they, are, they are diffusing out of their, their source and, and distribute at a, at a distance. And what is really important is the concentration. So at the place of, uh, of synthesis, you have a very high concentration and we are going far from that, that place, you have a lower, lower uh, concentration of the, of the product. And then after cells are moving. You know, it's a, it's a dynamic, dynamic system. What you need at the beginning is really to create the initial asymmetry. And then after the system is very autoregulatory. Yeah. So the idea is just cartoon to uh, have you understand better that you need these two coordinates. But yeah. I, was think, I was thinking was the best image for you all to understand. So we'll take one more question from the audience and uh, then uh, Anyone else who would like to ask questions is welcome to come up and talk to Chris and Bernard personally. I, I just wanted to ask, are there ethical controls at the University of Virginia to prevent this kind of research on human embryos? And then secondly, is the end goal to, to use a person's own stem cells to create uh, organs? Yes, yeah, you, you raise a very important question. And uh, this is a question of ethics because we sometimes, when the society look at scientists, they, they say maybe they are mad scientists playing Frankenstein. And we try not to do that. We, are, we want to be very responsible people. And when it comes to the ethical question, yes, there is ethical committees. And I want to say it's not to the scientists to decide. Uh, when, we, when it comes to, to think about humans, we're playing with fish trying to establish law. There is no ethical question playing with us. So fish, we want to understand how cells communicate, how we, we are building structure in life in general. But when will it, it will be time to, to move to human, you may ask the question, okay, if I make a kidney in vitro, is that a human? Well, I think certainly not. I mean, if you transplant the kidney from someone to the other, you are not uh, transplanting that someone. Uh, but if you make two organs, five organs, ten organs. When will be time where it's not a bunch of organs but a, a, will, a will individual? That, uh, that is a question. 
and as a scientist, I may I may suggest an answer, but I'm not the only one that can that can do the things. And I think in the society as a whole, with all philosophical and religious belief of people, that have to decide what is uh, acceptable, what is not acceptable, when it's, it's doable, and when it's unethical, and it's not only to the scientists to decide. And so. We are providing data, we are making them public, so that uh, all public can take the question and discuss and make decisions that at, at the end will become a law and probably will decide by law. Yeah. If, if I may add something to that, uh, the University of Virginia, like all universities that conduct research on this level, any experimentation involving humans, even, even it's, if it's just simple psychological testing, uh, requires approval from what's known as an institutional review board, an IRB, which is composed of, of not only uh, uh, scientists and other representatives of the university, but also members of the lay community. So we're a long way off from applying what you heard about today to making organs for human beings, but uh, I, I feel very confident that, uh, that all of the safeguards that you're concerned about are, are, are in place to make sure that uh, uh, if we ever get to that stage, that uh, it will be done ethically.